0: Three, two, one. This is Own the Block Podcast, and these are your hosts, Josh Derriman and Pierce Burton.
1: Welcome to the Own the Block Podcast, episode four. We got Paul Jones as a guest today. He is the head of non-QM business uh, management and development here at PRMG. And uh, how's it going,
0: Paul? It's going great. Thank you for having me today.
1: No problem. What is non-QM lending? I think a lot of people are familiar with. With you know your standard conventional FHA, VA loans, uh, can you give us a quick summary uh, of that and what your role is within that?
0: Sure. Uh, first of all, non-QM is uh, is a term that's really you know uh, covers a great wide landscape of different types of borrowers, and often it does get misconstrued as you know subprime uh, because we are helping borrowers who are not your prototypical uh, agency um, profile. And so some of the things that we're doing for them, like using bank statements to qualify, uh, like giving them an expanded debt-to-income ratio, uh, to kind of moving beyond your traditional uh, lending uh, landscape, people kind of construe as that subprime that we saw back in the early 2000s attributed to the crash. It really is not a subprime product. Uh, When you look at the uh, product offerings, most of the products today have a you know, LTV in the average of about seventy percent. These borrowers have a mid seven hundred FICO score. And they're really entrepreneurial, uh, financially savvy borrowers who just conduct themselves in a way you know, uh, outside of the norm. Uh so my role is really to help because these products are so different, have so many nuances and and different uh, uh parts that kind of move in different directions sometimes, is to help with training and coaching sales people, both internally and externally. Uh, helping with thought leadership around non-QM so people do understand exactly what it is, uh, marketing initiatives, really pulling out the important features rather than a lot of the cloudy stuff that kind of gets uh, put in front of people and making it more easily digestible for people across the, uh, across the country. Uh, so I've done everything from trainings, large-scale events for real estate agents, helping people build a referral network with other uh, partners that they normally can't introduce traditional products to. And um, that's a big part of how non-QM actually functions today, is really educating yourself and others and driving the awareness to the people who can provide more leads and more business to you.
2: So, Paul, uh, this podcast is mostly directed towards uh, property investors. And so uh, we, we look at a lot of the loans in the non-QM space towards investment properties and second homes where, where people are using them for uh, uh, VRBOs and, 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 and such. What are you seeing in the marketplace? Um, I know DSCR loans are, are very popular. Uh, we do a little bit of, um, you know, alt-doc type of loans. Can you talk about those sorts of things and why even in the non-QM space, you might do a full-doc non-QM loan rather than go conventional?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, the DSCR term is a very universally used term, in term uh, with non-QM. Uh, really, all it means is that cash flow. From the investment property being used for consideration instead of your traditional uh, W-2 pay stubs, tax returns, and those borrowers really over the last year and a half, two years, have been put on the sidelines uh, by your more traditional products because you know there's there's uh, concerns that aren't I don't think warranted with those types of properties. Uh, these investment properties are now close to. of most non-QM or special financing securitizations, this is a big part of the marketplace. And I always say, you know, a borrower can only have one primary residence. They can have multitudes of investment properties, and that's what this product serves. So instead of looking at your W-2s, pay subs, and all those things that we're used to, these products just look at the cash flow only on the subject property. I only need to understand... That this person who's buying an investment property or refinancing that investment property is making enough in monthly rent to cover the mortgage payment. And in most cases, or some at least, you're seeing interest only as an option for the payment. So we want to know that that person who's going to own that property can get a tenant or even a short-term Rental, uh, uh, you know, long term average of those incomes and use only that income to qualify them. I don't care about your W 2s, I don't care about your liabilities, what you pay monthly for your other uh, homes. I just need to know that property's income producing, and that's what debt service coverage or DSCR really means. And again, the agencies did not really give those people who understand the value of property and second homes and investment opportunities the right chance to uh, participate as they should be able to. And these special financing solutions such as cash flow and investment really give them uh, many more opportunities um, that a lot of them still don't even know exist. So there's a lot of word we can get out there.
2: Uh, A question that I have for you is why would somebody that's an investor or looking for a second home go to non-QM if they can fully document their income?
0: Sure. Well, with fully documented income, you know there are uh, expansions that you can get with non-QM, such as just using one year of income to qualify, uh, using other alternative sources, combining them, and that gives you just more overall buying power. And remember, non-QM loans start at lower loan sizes and then move into $3 million max loan amounts, so you have a lot more wider way to qualify as well.
2: So you're referring to uh, qualifying just on a profit and loss statement or maybe six or 12 months bank statements rather than than, uh, two years of tax returns and pay steps and things like that that you might want with a conventional
0: loan. Right. So a non-QM loan just gives you alternative ways to qualify outside of your traditional methodologies from bank statements to 1099, profit and loss, cash flow and investment, things of that nature really are the primary focus on the non-QM side for qualifying.
1: Before... Covid, we were do, we were functioning at about a ninety percent clip on agency type loans. Since then, we've we've seen a kind of a dramatic shift where more clients are asking for the, those non-QM loans. Non-QM loans fit that borrower uh, better post-Covid, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. One reason I, I believe is a lot of people's tax returns look like crap for uh, th- those COVID years uh, in terms of them being a self-employed borrower. Also, a lot of people have cash to be able to put down those, uh, those higher down payments that non-QM requires. What, what are you seeing and the reason for the uptick in non-QM when non-QM was almost tanked? at the beginning of uh, COVID completely. I mean, companies were shutting down. I know Angel Oak, a big player in that space, shut their doors completely for a a few months. And so what have you seen kind of a resurgence of non-QM since since that point?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question, Pierce. COVID, you know, gave us, you know, a lot of challenges that we all know about. And one of the biggest challenges that came early on was the um, loss of liquidity in specialized financing markets like Jumbo and non-QM. So those products disappeared for about anywhere from four to six months, depending on the lenders. And when they came back, the world was a lot different, right? We had a lot of people who had to change um, uh, their their way of life economically. People lost jobs. People started new jobs. People began taking up uh, um, their own professional businesses uh, in light of those challenges and other businesses did really well during the pandemic. So all those borrowers kind of sat there doing record low rates and kind of scrambled to find the opportunity to take equity out of their homes, buy a larger home. We saw a lot of people buying second homes and investment property during that time. And unfortunately, um only loan officers who were really well educated on non-QM prior to COVID were able to help them. So that kind of wave of borrowers continued to kind of cascade over Uh, through the refinance boom. And then as refinances dried up, you know, non-QM became a revenue replacement strategy for a lot of people. And uh, the word continued to spread. So now, you know, pre-COVID, a self-employed borrower may not have come to you knowing they could use bank statements. Now they're knocking on your door saying, I want to use these bank statements to qualify. And they know that they're, you know, a a viable customer otherwise. Same thing, as you mentioned, with the assets that people have. A lot of people, you know, made great gains on their investments and other savings during the pandemic. Those monies are now being used to help them even today with putting that larger down payment that's required with some non-QM products. So overall, you know, once COVID subsided, if you will, uh, in its influence on non-QM, uh, those that were really uh, dialed in ready uh, to deliver were there. And then a lot of people started playing catch up and now the market, I would say the market's pretty saturated with non-QM providers. And in some way, it's the wild, wild west, uh, but in other ways, it helps to keep uh, the market alive. Um, and the last thing, just speaking of those companies you mentioned, you know, that was one of the things as we entered back into non-QM at the shop I worked at, was people who were um, burned by those companies that didn't honor commitments and pipelines and funding loans during that time. And so those that were able to manage those waters more successfully are kind of still winning, believe it or not, in this space, versus some of the others that have some reputational uh, challenges from that time.
1: And where do you see the space moving? Uh, because I, I do think there's still a number of holes in the lending capabilities of, of non-QM. For example, um, construction-type lending, um, lending to short-term rentals or Airbnbs, I, I don't think is, is hashed out and has as linear a form as like a basic investment property. Um, Additionally, kind of going with that construction space, land land loans, and then also um, really the non-QM space. It does provide some uh, five unit plus commercial lending, but really focuses on the one to four unit space. Do you see it moving outside of, kind of those parameters into some of those other um, avenues?
0: Yeah, I I do, actually. I think the market has finally um, settled and the uh, securitizations are getting better again, which means you're always going to see product uh, expand again and new things enter. Um, Construction was one big thing we were talking about with uh, uh, a major bank uh, prior to COVID, uh, one of the last conferences I went to. Uh, And then it it reemerged, but again, with um, other uh, uh, expansions and constrictions occurring, it never really took off. And I think we could get there again with a construction opportunity. Uh, fix and flip falls under that as well. Um, you can leverage bank statements on a fix and flip deal or something like that. Uh, one of the things that's come come up and I, I think we're exploring it ourselves is looking at closed end seconds. Um, closed end seconds are you know, something that people want, want to leverage uh, given the rate environment today. And using a bank statement with a closed-end second is uh, there's a couple of providers moving into that space. Uh, I think you just have to be very cautious of some of the more uh, esoteric offerings that are out there in the marketplace. Um, And I won't mention what those are specifically, but there are certain things I see that people are trying to really push and become their bread and butter. And from the securitization side if nobody wants to buy that one day, there's gonna be a gulture that was you know sitting out there that we have to figure out what, what to do with. So it can be a little dangerous. Paul, we're all friends here.
2: What are these what are these products?
0: <laughs> well, I would I would say one one thing that I've seen kinda uh start to go the way of the dinosaur and it may come back, you never know. Uh, Maybe some kind of Jurassic Park uh, element there. Uh, I-10 borrowers were for undocumented. You know, some people do that as an undocumented loan program and others, you know, would prefer some type of comfort level around someone using an I-10 in lieu of a social security number. Uh, Foreign nationals, uh, if you looked at recent pricing adjustments, if you're doing a foreign national, even on a DSCR loan, can be a little bit of a challenge from a cost perspective now. Uh, There's just concern. Even with that 35 percent down, you know, some people are not really as comfortable with that than they were uh, a year, year and a half ago. Some people were, were the far national kings of, you know, you guys down there in Miami and places like that. So they're still out there. They're still relevant. I think the more standard players that have been around for a longer time are being a little bit more uh, measured uh, about what what they're going to keep in their portfolio next year, what they're going to continue to offer.
1: Paul, I, I like to think of the non-QM space as the cryptocurrency craziness of of lending because there's all these different players coming coming into the marketplace. Some of them are bullshit, other others are not, and and so you, you kind of have to figure out who uh, who you want to work with and and where to. Um, You know, send clients loan applications, too, um, because, you know, some of the stuff sounds too good to be true. Uh, Other places change their rules or even fold in in the middle of transactions when when, when times are tough.
0: Yeah, I, I can speak to that. I mean, that's a big thing I said coming into PRMG looking at the accounts available to broker out to is you got to know who your partners are. And some, most of them are good. I mean, that's, again, I look for success. Uh, Every person at those shops that we have available are people I I know people at every shop and um, I want them to be successful where I think there was a challenge over the last year when you saw companies fold, as you mentioned earlier, were mispriced assets back to why someone might look attractive on the surface. They're giving you a rate better than everyone else. And you kind of wonder, how is that possible? Well, they're gonna do loans at a loss and you can only do that for so long. So some of the guys who got in trouble over the last several months were companies that were mispricing their asset and not reading the tea leaves on the um, on the purchase side, selling those assets to the street. And what's unfortunate about that is everyone had the same indicators. The IG spreads were continuing to make an uptick almost at the level of one third of where they were when liquidity crisis hit in 2020.
1: Explain IG, IG spreads for the listeners here.
0: Sure. That's just, yeah, that's just essentially your long-term cost of funds for loans that are being bought on the secondary market. And the higher those cost of funds are, the more expensive it is for anyone to buy those assets, right? It's going to cost you more to buy more. And so what we see is, you know, that number is what we kind of gauge against knowing what those securitizations will um, basically uh, realized gain on sale at the end of the day um and those investors were we were used to a five percent rate average right on non q m slowly as the economics of this world turn you know global uh political geopolitical issues across the world um inflation at record highs everything cost more so the the indicators were there early this year, showing that it was gonna you needed to sell to be profitable higher note rate products you had to have it set that way. And if anyone was offering a four or five when this indicator was going up like this, when they went to sell those assets, which, again, there's no real-time hedging on non-QM. So you have to kind of – you're gambling every time you put a pool out there and sell those loans unless you do a forward commitment. Ultimately, once you do that, that loan, by the time you factor in your commission for sales guys, your operation costs, et cetera, you might be making one on an entire pool of loans. On a heyday of non-QM, you're making three or four sometimes.
1: What, what Paul means by one or three for, for our listeners is is one, 1% of the loan amount um, up, up to 3%, right, Paul?
0: Yeah, exactly. And then on pools of two, three 300000000 million, right? I mean, depending on who you are and what you're selling at any given time. But if you're selling an asset for with you know, a weighted average coupon of five and the market wants six, then they're going to pay you less for that. And people continue to fall behind and wanting to stay competitive on the surface, getting everyone to send their business. But when they go to sell those loans, they're not making any money. You can only go so long without making money, right? So that's what we saw with certain companies who had the same. It's like you and your neighbor have the same weather forecast and it's going to rain. And everybody says it's going to rain. And you close your windows, you know, you you you, know, you batten down the hatches and your neighbor leaves everything wide open. And you both were under the same clouds. You just had to be aware Pay attention to the weather forecast, and you you and your neighbor could be in the same shape. Um, unfortunately, we we had some some challenges in that regard. So I always like to point that out because the news around non-QM is it's dangerous. It's you know it's it's challenging. You made the point like crypto, um, but I think those are people who are trying to gobble up and buy up the market right now. And uh, luckily, we're not in that position. I think we're we're with better partners that way.
2: Paul, I want to give you a story. Uh, about six nine, six, nine months ago, the, the non-QM space was kind of going through some, some issues, some liquidity issues. And so what we were seeing is as rates were going up, as you said, um, a lot of the non-QM lenders are naked into the secondary market. They don't have those forward commitments. And so what they're doing is they're, they're going out into the marketplace and they're offering certain rates, but they're not covering those rates. And so they may tell you, hey, your rates locked at 5%, 6%, whatever. But if they can't sell that into the marketplace uh, once the loan's closed, then they take a loss, as you said. And that loss can be massive, especially if rates go up quickly, and that's what they did. And so what you saw in the non-QM spaces, you would see some lenders where they would play games to try and um, get you to go past your lock expiration date, or they would just flat out tell you, your lock is no good here, you have to go to market. And, and, par- and, and, it's, and it's a terrible thing to have to say, but a lot of those companies that they didn't do that they would have gone bankrupt. There was no way that they could have funded those loans and gone into the marketplace, they would, have been, they would have been bankrupt. And so that takes me to kind of where we are now. Coincidentally, I just sent an email to one of our broker partners and I told them that we were putting on hold any new submissions to them because I'm not comfortable with what I'm seeing from them and that's not to say that they're having liquidity issues, could be other things, but you have to be very careful about who you are sending your loans to in the non-QM space because in, in a very short period, you could have a very good lender relationship and then they could run into issues and the very next month, they're a complete disaster. And so part of what we do is really, really uh, shepherd that. Um, but let me take you to uh, what's something you said before you said it's kind of a, um, the wild west. It's a little bit less of the wild west than it used to be. Right, and so there's there's definitely more uh, there's there's a little bit more conservative underwriting than there has been, but I'm curious what you're seeing coming down the pipe. Do you see any new products? Because you have a better view on it from where from where you sit than we do. Do you do you see new things coming down the pipe, and, and what do you expect those to be?
0: Well, I think the products now, to your point, are very homogenized. It's very bank statements. Probably ninety nine percent of people do bank statements. Do them exactly the same, right? So. Um, product expansion is, is there, like I said, closed end seconds. Um, I think you're most importantly going to see in the next quarter, some return to the things that we had previously that went away for a little bit of time. So, you know, maybe more credit availability at higher LTVs. Um, you're going to see more of a, a market again, allowing below a one on DSCR. Uh, but I think product wise, closed end seconds, some construction, um, you mentioned earlier the multi-unit, five to eight is out there. I think it needs to be kind of brought in as a bigger piece of, of the product offerings uh, across the board, uh, or at least we want to have that. I don't know if we, you know, everyone else should have it. We want to be competitive. Um, but, again, that's what's interesting about non-QM having been in it for almost seven or eight years. Its growth is, is, is only really limited mostly by fulfillment, and that's where I think technology is going to come in. Uh, automated underwriting engines, qualifying tools, bank statement calculators, anything that can make an efficiency of the loan product make the determination if you have a deal or not up front. I think that's the next wave of non q m to be honest it's less about product, maybe moving more into a technological space uh, to help those deals seem more like an regular if you will agency offering so there are some a u s out there that you know when you run their Automated underwriting engine, it looks just like a DU finding. So instead of you having to figure out how many months of assets do I need uh, based on everything, uh, how many with the LTV is, with the FICO, I got to put everything together. If I just put that in, the algorithm's already built, it's going to say you need you know, $23,592 in assets for this transaction like DU does. And that's the stuff that I think is really going to make uh, this market feel more comfortable to a lot of loan officers who have struggled with non-QM.
1: So so I'm going to run down a quick product list of some of the products that we're utilizing for our clients in the non-QM space. And then I think it would be good, Paul, if you throw in any tidbits you have about those and potentially other product types that maybe I'm I'm missing. Uh, Just just kind of for a, a quick, simple summary of that type of stuff. So the, f- the first one would be D- DSCRs, and this stands for debt service coverage ratio. And basically the only things as lenders, what we're gonna look at is your credit score, how much money you have in your, in your bank account, and then what the debt service coverage ratio of that property is. And so what, what that means is we're gonna look at what the property's current rent is, or the projected rent of that property, And how we find out what the projected rent, if the property is not rented, is we get what's called a 1007, And that goes along with your standard appraisal that you get when you're purchasing a property. And the appraiser is going to determine what the market rents are for that particular property. And that's going to be the large determining factor on um, the ability to qualify. But there are non-QM products in the space where you can actually have no DSCR ratio at all. What that means is the rent does not even have to cover the mortgage. Now, there is a premium to rates and terms on that particular product, but that is an option for you. And then depending on what, what the DSCR amount is, meaning what the rent to mortgage payment that is going to determine what your rate and terms is along with your credit score. Did I miss anything there on uh, DSCR that you want to add, Paul?
0: Well, I mean, you you explained it perfectly and it's just a simple break-even analysis comparing the gross rent to the monthly payment. And the good news is if people are familiar with Fannie Mae, for example, they take a percentage off of that gross rent before you can use it as a qualifying uh, income. For us, We just give you the full value of whatever that um, uh, gross monthly rent is. Uh, Another big thing that the investor community really needs is being able to hold that property in an LLC. And that's a major win, right? When you have a multitude of properties in your portfolio, you want to make sure you're holding them uh, in some protective manner. Uh, I think with the borrowers that need these products, the key thing to remember is you can do these loans with as little as 20% down, and we're never looking at your FICO. I mean, we're looking at your FICO, but we're not looking at how many debts you carry every month. So whatever your monthly payments are, if you're managing them already, you don't have to worry about someone saying you have too much debt or looking at your personal income and saying you don't have enough income or looking at your other properties and saying, well, you're underwater this month on that property. We can't help you. It only is the basis of the loan on that particular property that's going to help them qualify. And that's just just tremendous for most investors That's the way they think they should qualify that's the way they should be qualified. Uh,
1: so then the next one would be bank statement loans and on bank statement loans basically we're looking at your credit and then how much money is coming in each month on the bank statement and we can go 24 months worth of bank statements we can go 12 months there's some products out there you can even go six or even three months. And depending on how many months of bank statements we're looking at, that's also going to determine the terms of that loan product. And the bank statement loan is really solely a product for second home and primary residence and really isn't necessary on the investor side of things, which I think is a major confusion between a lot of uh, clients because the, the pricing on the bank statement uh, versus the DSCR isn't a large enough delta for it really to make sense on the investor space. Um, and so bank, bank statement um, offers, that, uh, offers an alternative to looking at your tax returns or looking at W-2s or pay stubs on a primary residence or second home purchase.
0: Yeah. And the good news with the bank statements is, as you mentioned, there's so many different methodologies, even though it's a normalized product now in the non-QM space, you know, you have 12 or 24 months, you have business or personal. Uh, The technology behind the scenes is really quick to calculate that income. So there's no kind of waiting two or three days to know if it's going to work. You can get that income calculated up front. And we use some AI technology even that reads the bank statements and and can really uh, make that quick determination. Um, one other thing that's really important, you know, Pierce, with the bank statements is, you know, someone may need some extra relief to give more income out of those bank statements, and we have ways to help them with that as well. A CPA letter or an unaudited simple P&L can help give someone the maximize maximize income out of those bank statements as well.
1: Yeah, typically for all of our different product lines, what are you seeing in terms of if if let's say someone made ten thousand dollars in a month, what are they what are the different options to be able to determine that income uh, for 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 that person?
0: Yeah, using bank statements, um, there's a simple calculation. It's kind of a baseline calculation that gives them 50% of the revenue deposits that go into the account, if it's a business account, or 100% of the revenue deposits if it's a personal account. Uh, but that customer could have a type of business where uh, they have less expenses, you know, fewer expenses every month. We will give them uh, even more income if the CPA for that business states for the last 12 months, the expense factor has maybe been, let's say, 20%. As long as it makes sense for the business, they can use that uh, lower expense factor and get the maximized income. Or if they're not comfortable or their CPA won't provide that letter, we can just get that simple, unaudited is the key, profit and loss for that same time period as the bank statements. And internally, we can determine what those expenses are and what that expense factor will be, and give them more uh, income uh, to work with. One of the other things you know, when it comes to income is, we always think of bank statements, but it's also important to remember you can combine a bank statement customer with a regular wage earner. And a regular wage earner can go on a non-QM loan with just one year of W-2, or one year of tax returns that shows income. So we have just a one-year qualifier all the way up to a $3 million loan amount using multiple uh, types of income combined. And then that asset utilization as well that we mentioned earlier can even be thrown in there and give someone you know a better chance of getting what they really want in terms of a mortgage
1: and and then there's a kind of a a newer product that kind of has come um, to fruition over the last uh year and a half or two that basically is no income primary residence and second home right and that that product basically you're having to put down 20% and depending on your credit score, it's determining the amount of reserves you have. So, you know, at the pre, you know, right around COVID time and and that sort of thing, I saw some lenders even going down to a 640 credit score on that with 18 months of reserves. Now they've kind of bumped that up a little bit to a higher credit score, maybe 660, 680. Um, What what can you tell me about that product? Because that is almost going back to some of the pre-2008 stuff on stated income. The one caveat and difference is... Um, you're almost forced to go 30-year fixed on that. So then at least they're at a fixed payment rather than an adjustable, like pre-2008 on some of that stated stuff.
2: Paul, before before you answer it, I wanted to inject here. So the CDFI lenders that offer this no ratio product for, for primary and second homes, it actually reminds me of the old countrywide Fast and Easy product, where you were doing stated income, stated asset. Essentially, it's the same thing. You weren't actually having a stated income. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a product that's been around the CDFI exemption for probably at least seven, eight years, maybe even longer, but it's really d- didn't start coming to the fore until the last couple of years. And so I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about that.
0: Well, you yeah, your CDFI, you know, has a, has a special designation that's really, um, meant to serve a a a particular type of customer right you know and and that's where you do see some hybrid usage of non-qm and particularly this type of product with that designation um the reality is i mean hot take for me i think you're 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 kind of leading yourself into trouble using that designation uh and and tethering it to a non-qm offering uh because the non-qm products remember go into you know um beyond just your affordable housing levels right they go up to three million dollars so how do you justify you know the cdfi um uh designation on a non-qm borrower that's getting a lot of um home that's really not what the product's designed for and we were getting rates uh, on those from 4.5 to 5 percent
1: um you know um about what this time last year so which which was crazy (laughs) just crazy at the at the time,
2: Pierce and I were laughing about it because you could get a four unit property, uh, primary residence, second home, uh, do no ratio uh, twenty. I think at the time it was you could even do fifteen percent down, and so it was it was pretty crazy. It really reminded me of the go the go go days of the of the early two thousands. The fifteen percent
1: down was on the DSCR, Josh, not not on not on that one. I don't bel- I don't believe you. I, I swear. Okay. I, I, entirely possible. But Paul,
2: I, I, I saw you make a face when we mentioned CDFI. So what is, what is the issue that you're seeing? You kind of, you kind of mixed in there. You're, you're discussed with the product and then potentially some issues with being able to sell the product on the secondary market. So, so can you talk a little bit more about uh, what, that, what the CDFI uh, de- designation does for a particular lender and, and what the challenges are selling that product on the secondary market? Because I know that there have been some issues recently.
0: Yeah, I think there's going to be more of a creep uh, in issues around this because your, you know, your C D F I is really, you know, it's designed for, you know, investing in, in you know, certain areas and helping uh, those that are maybe otherwise shuttered out of home ownership, um, and and that's that's great. We all uh, believe in that. So I believe in that aspect of it. I just am a little challenged by using some of these um, non-QM. Uh, uh, features under that designation right so you're you're calling it this so you can get the better rate you're calling it that so you can uh still go non-qm it's just it's just kind of creating a little bit of a um it's it's for it's it's what neither product is designed for or neither feature and those products are designed to be married together but right now that's that's become commonplace for a couple of companies uh I, i mean i You know, again, this is a podcast, so it's it's not meant to be my my gospel here. But I do, you know, have it on good authority from some people I know are tremendous advocates in lending that talk to the people in D.C. Even that there's there's a lot of um, attention on that right now. They're they're watching that very closely. Out of anything, I say if you're gonna look closely at the top three things that people are concerned about, uh, especially since we're talking about affordability of homes right now, uh, people are looking at those companies that are leveraging. That designation uh, with non-QM to kind of justify uh, what they're doing. So, Paul, let me let me ask
2: you this question. So, as you know, uh, some of our federal regulators have come down on Fannie and Freddie and basically directed them to disincentivize um, um, financing through those through those authorities for second homes and investment properties. And so that shifted some of those financing um, requirements or financing requests to. Uh, private jumbo investors, uh, uh, institutional investors, your, your B of A, your Wells Fargo, and the non-QM space. How has the non-QM space responded to that um, that FHFA uh, push for Fannie and Freddie not to do as much second home and investment?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been very interesting. I think we, a couple things happened over the last, this has been like year year and a half off and on right there's been threats and then they pulled back some of the llpas um people did a few things right they they improved their non-qm products they already had in existence which you can do because you own that product or you have an investor that you sell that product to so you say oh wow this is going to be a windfall for me you know i just have to move the needle just enough to take those same borrowers and put them into these non-qm offerings and not make it too painful for them um, and then, you know, where I was my previous home, we we actually created an entirely new product that was only designed for those borrowers who were left in the dust by the agencies. So the response is, and that's what I kind of like about non-QM, it's easy to pivot with it. I and mean, it may not seem like that sometimes, but when the market goes through its turmoil or the agencies shake things up, you know, non-QM is always there and minus a hundred year pandemic, which none of us saw coming. I really think non-QM in some regards is, is economic proof, right? It works in downtimes like we're seeing now. Um, We've remained consistent in our production in non-QM as a company uh, since I've joined, even with everything else kind of on the other side of a, you know, a slight downturn. Um, But when things are really good, right? You have more borrowers coming to, to the table as well. And a lot of those borrowers are not quintessential typical borrowers and they can be put right there for those products. And, during those better times, the market's stronger and the products are wider, and credit availability is you know at, at its at its height. So, um, I I think that's what's great about non-QM. It's nimble. Um, it can be shaped very quickly to fix other things that are going on, and we're seeing that right now. It's more reactive um, in a negative sense, but it's also um, I've seen it in times like you said, second home investment challenges, where you just step on the gas and you are able to help everyone else who's underserved by the agencies for one reason or another, as soon as they get a wild hair, you know, we're able to help those borrowers in most cases.
1: Yeah. Paul kind of a funny story here. I used to sell all of my clients, higher net worth clients on only using the conventional loan to buy primary residences and second homes because of the lower down payments and interest rates. Um, um, you know, incentives, especially on the on the second home, because second home used to have prior to basically February or March had the same uh, interest rates as, you, you know, your primary residence. And, you know, Fannie Freddie kind of pulled the rug out from under me, telling all my clients to do that. And then I was telling all the clients to do, you, you know, non-QM for all their Just straight up investment properties, because then they could, you know, own basically a primary residence and, uh, you know, nine Airbnbs at ten percent down. And now you're not able to do that in uh, with the rug getting pulled out from under you. Um, Back to the products, real quick. Uh, On you mentioned something interesting to me. The uh, seconds with with, in the non-QM space. I think it's something that clients are really almost begging for at, at this point. You know, they want to get um, HELOCs, or like you said, close in seconds on their investment property specifically. Do, do you see that coming to the marketplace um, from a bank statement and DSCR standpoint? And what challenges do you see with that product? Because obviously it's it's, Clients don't understand um, that the difference between the difficulties on lending on a second mortgage opposed to um, being in first lien position.
0: Sure. Yeah, I I do see it coming down the pike. I've had a couple conversations with, uh, there's there's three, four guys out there really, I think, behind the scenes, either developing it or already have it on the market. And it does tie itself to DSCR. It ties itself to bank statements, all the things that we think of as non-QM. It's right there for the picking. I think you just have to make sure again, because we're selling these assets, you know, in in their own kind of silo that one, your investors, you know, are comfortable with them. Right. Because seconds have never been a part of non-QM. So you make sure everyone who's buying those loans agree that you can have those seconds bolted on Uh, Two, I think one of the things that's uh, you just have to look out for is, uh, you know, what's the viability of the market long term? Right. I mean, those customers will want that today because of the way the thing, you know, the, the way things are working in the economy. Do they need them, you know, three years from now, two years from now? Will that really matter? Um, are they profitable for a loan officer? I mean, yes, it's a means to an end, but can you guys make money on them? You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. And what I have seen with, uh, the one that I'm more most familiar with is they've shaped their pricing to actually make these loans worth your, your interest in doing them as much as theirs. So there is a little bit more skin in the game for everyone with these new products. But um, yeah, I think that's, you know, just that, you know, close in seconds. Hopefully we can deploy something soon. Um, again, one of our investors is working on something so, covert, they won't even show us. Um, they keep telling us, but they won't show it to us. Um, so I hope what, you know, between those two that I'm familiar with, we can put something on the street very soon.
2: Hey, Paul, let me tell you, uh, in my bag of, of wish list, I want, a, I want a one-year investor arm. I've been saying this for years, I've been pounding the table, nobody listens to me. There's a little bit starting to come out in the marketplace, but a nice one-year investor arm um, I think would create um, all kinds of a uh, buzz and uh, there's a lot of investors out there that'd be more than willing to have it. Everybody loves a 30 year because it's insurance, it feels good, nobody ever keeps their loan remotely close to that time. And if you actually look and you chart it out, it can make a lot of sense if somebody is uh, well qualified and liquid enough to, to be in an arm. It makes more sense over time versus a, versus a fixed rate. But I don't see that out in the marketplace. Why do you think that is?
0: You know, arms are just not a big part of the equation anymore, but I'm really surprised to hear you You're saying you're not seeing it with some of the more, going back to our Wild Wild West analogy, right? There's some more commercial type investors out there that, um, you know, they're usually the first ones to dive in with the more aggressive, um, different stuff. I won't say unusual, uh, different stuff. Um, I guess at the end of the day, looking at those loans, um, nobody wants something that's just not going to be around for a long time, as far as an asset. I'll give you an example,
2: Paul. So if you if you uh, if you're if you're an investor and you say, Hey, I'm gonna I want a three and a half margin. We're gonna base it off of the one year treasury. Put that out in the marketplace, at fifty percent LTV, sixty, whatever. There's long term profit for you in in that. You're you're not subject to um, you know being into a, a a lengthy fixed term. So it's easily. Uh, s- saleable if, if you need to get rid of that debt um, but it doesn't seem like the market wants to put that out and I, I kind of scratch my head because it seems like it makes a lot of sense but there's other than a very few sources it's, it's just not out there I'd love to see some more of the institutional non-kill lenders get into that space because it, it does make a lot of sense especially now uh, with with higher rates um, um, you know rearing their rearing their heads but it, it seems like a, a good long term play. So, Paul, when you're out there talking to the big wigs, you know, uh, make sure to mention
0: that. I will. I will. If if it, And again, uh, you know, send me or show me what you have as far as those out there in the market that are doing it today. I'd like to kind of take a look. I, I've never examined it enough. Like I said, it's surprising, you know, only until recently did we have arms as part of the non-QM world. And, you know, interest only is there, of course, for the affordability. But I think you do need a. Set of more varied terms to offer these types of borrowers that you're going to run into. Paul, it's a little bit of a
2: secret, but there's there's uh, negam out there too. Um, you thought that you thought that disappeared, but but there are sources for nagam
0: Yeah. Yep. Listen, everything uh, uh, old is new again, and, mm-hmm. and mortgage lending sooner or later everything comes back.
1: While we're doing wish lists, I want a fix and flip to perm cash out all in one.
0: Okay. All right.
1: DSCR.
0: Okay. Per- perfect. No problem. No problem. No problem. You know, I, there's a lot of kids out there right now that have an amazing Christmas list, and I think you know this is the season for wishing. So let's all uh, <laughs> see what's under the tree a uh, few I, I more days from now.
2: There was a. Dis- there's been a dislocation in the price spread between uh, the ten-year Treasury and conventional rates. There's also been a dislocation between conventional rates and non-QM. When do you think uh, the spread between the ten-year treasury and conventional rates will start to tighten up, and when do you when do you see the conventional and non-QM spread start to tighten up as well? Because that makes a huge difference on the non-QM rates, because you'll see a tightening of of both, and it'll 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 really push the non-QM rates down quite a bit.
0: The spread between the ten-year and conventional rates is going to be more dependent on, you know, what what the Fed keeps doing with general um, rate increases, which hopefully they're going to pull back on those, um, you know, over the next year, I mean, the inflation numbers are starting to look better. Um, CPI is, you know, looking better, um, things are improving. And I think once those improvements, uh, manifest materially and, 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 and continue to stay, uh, stable, remain stable, those rates that were, you know, all wanting to continue to drop and get, uh, down to, uh, uh, acceptable levels for, con- levels for consumers will be there. What's interesting when you say that about the non QM rates compared to conventional, because that's really where my head is always, is when you look at the last, I have a chart on this actually, but if you look at the last year and a half, right, normally non QM rates would move, I mean, you could go two months without moving your rates. Like you never moved them. Like I, I mean, I, I've been, you know, flat rates, that was it. You didn't lock your loan until the day before you're going to, you know, send out a CD, uh, a CD. But now, it's any given day, any given time, and they, that curve, as the rates continue to increase, really started to have more uh, fluctuation in it as it continued to increase. It never looked like that before; it was always a smooth arch, no matter which way it went. So um, until you stop seeing that, and it follows along the same trajectory of course of conventional rates, and still you, until you, I think you see the conventional rates come down and swing. You'll start to see those rates, but I think you'll still get those fluctuations. It may be the new normal in non-QM, to be honest with you. I just think there's going to be more um, daily, if not weekly, fluctuations um, for the foreseeable future. I don't know if that really answers that question, but I just keep seeing that chart in my head. And it's a very recent chart. And just looking at that variation, it's just been so interesting. You know, non-QM, again, never moved rates, you know, very often. It was six weeks two months, you know, a month, maybe you wouldn't move on. them.
1: One question I've always wanted answered, Paul, about non-QM versus conventional, especially on the investment side, is the difference between the, the LLPA hits um, on conventional, obviously, opposed to non-QM. They seem a lot more, and for the listeners that don't know what LLPA is, LLPA basically is – the amount of rate increase for different options in the loan. For example, a cash out refinance is going to have a higher rate than a purchase transaction or a two to four unit property is going to have a higher rate than a single family home. And the hits are not nearly as dramatic on non-QM as they are on conventional. So there has actually been times in the marketplace where, you know, the most expensive investment property uh, thing you can do on a conventional loan is a cash out on a four unit, a two to four unit property and um, a max cash out, right, on, on that. If you're doing that on a non, a lot of non QM products, there's times where that's actually been on a DSCR has been cheaper than doing it on a conventional loan bike a pretty large margin and it's because those LPA hits on it on non-QM are, are not nearly as drastic. What, what is that? What is the reason for that?
0: Uh, In some cases, just because your base rate is already high, you know, you're already, they're already picking up a lot of the risk or accounting for a lot of the risk in the, you know, the nature of a non-QM loan. So it's there. Um, And then, you know, other attributes, even the riskier ones, depending on where we are in the market, um, you know, actually, Pay better on in the, in the street, depending on where the market is. So you could have, um, you know, you to incentivize kind of pushing the envelope on certain attributes. They like to have kind of a spread of what the attributes are in the loans that are being sold. So you can't just go out selling a whole pool of DSCR. They want to see highs and lows in there. They want to have a good mix. And I think that also helps to encourage a good mix of product because if it's too mono it's actually more um, uh, it's riskier. You know, if someone's only chasing after Uh, a bunch of no ratio DSCR, you know, where's your other product? How are you positioning that? Why are you only kind of adversely selecting the riskier stuff in your own portfolio to sell to the street? Uh, So sometimes it's just to encourage a a variation uh, in the, in the pools that are being sold.
1: I've always thought that all, all that sort of thing is kind of backwards because I, if I'm lending Paul Jones, my money, I'd much rather give him my money to go buy a four unit property than to go buy a single family home, um, as, as a rental, because you, you then have four, four renters. Everything's more efficient than doing a single family home. Um, same thing with cash out. I'd rather lend my money on cash out because then you have cash in your pocket. What do you think the reasoning is behind those hits as well?
0: So you're yeah, just to make sure I understand your question. You're saying that the cash out hits. You feel cash is better, so it should be priced. Shouldn't be so sure. To sure. Investment. Same
1: same yeah. thing with a four four unit opposed or two to four unit opposed to a a, a single family home. Um, it's it's I I see it as less risk to a lender, not not more. I've always thought that's backward. Ever since I got in the lending space, that 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 that's the way it is in the in the marketplace as a whole. But it it doesn't make, it's never made any sense to me.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't know if I could justify it myself or argue. I could probably argue both sides of that. Uh, to be honest with you, I I I've, I've been an underwriter in the past, and you know when you see debt consolidation, you know, and someone saying that's their purpose and it's not being paid off at the closing. So you're like, all right, so you know, what, what's going to happen really with that money, right? It, it's kind of hard to, to determine if someone's you know maxed on their ratios or they're kind of pushing the envelope and they say they're going to pay off their debt, but they're going to do it on their own um, after closing. Then you, you hope for the best, right? There's nothing you can c- control about that. Um, and I, I think equity stripping has been a concern over time in, in lending, I think since 2008 crash. I've seen that, you know, um, moral hazard sets in, people take their cash and they run. Um, So when you talk about a four unit, just to make sure I understand what you're saying, you're again saying the adjustment on a four unit should be, should not be as harsh.
1: I think, I I think it should be, I think the rate should be better on a four unit opposed to a single family because you have four renters. So if a, if a, if a renter, one renter moves out, you're not, you're not cooked in terms of, in terms of paying that mortgage and and if you actually look in like in oh eight and and that sort of thing very few multifamily got foreclosed on it was it, it it was mainly your your single family homes that 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 were getting foreclosed on even in the investor space
0: I don't think I'll argue with that one either because we've we've looked at those numbers in terms of dscr and you know, trying to really push people into the two to four unit space for those products on the, you know, using cash flow. And I'm, I'm really not concerned as much about all four units, you know, uh, being rented out or something, because to your point, I could probably cover my mortgage with two, you know, uh, in most cases. So who cares if two are sitting vacant, you know, right now for, you know, a couple of months or whatever. You know, if, if really, most people, cash flow obviously better on a four unit. So I, I'm, I can't really speak to it because I, I don't. I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> it's a little, it is a little strange. Josh, what's your opinion?
2: People, people that are not in the mortgage space that don't have the experience and understanding of the kind of the back end stuff, uh, they, they, they don't realize that so much is driven by uh, uh, guidelines and selling into the secondary market. Everything has to be packaged up and there has to be, as you said, a homogenization and so, so you're not sitting there as a loan officer or as a broker or as an underwriter, going, "Hey, I like this deal. This guy's a nice guy. I know him." It's not that way anymore. It may have been that way 50 years ago, but that's not the way. And so, something that may logically make sense isn't really how lending is done anymore. And so, everything is square pay, square hole, round pay, round hole, and 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 we're talking about non-QM. So non-QM extends that a little bit but it's you still have to meet those guidelines and when you talk to an underwriter and you go well this makes sense and they go that may make sense but that's got nothing to do that's not part of the calculus of how we underwrite loans and how we fund loans and how we we push loans through the system and so uh, i totally agree if i had if i had a, a billion dollars and i said i'm going to invest in in mortgage-backed securities i would be i wouldn't i wouldn't do it in in fha loans or conventional loans i'd look at dscr you know 1.2 and a better four unit because those are going to be to me the most secure I could probably come up with maybe even a better option but but to, to Pierce's point it makes a lot of sense there's a there's a lot of security in having those rents and those extra units and if something is, is has a positive cash flow you know it, it should check all the boxes you would think it would be a, a relatively inexpensive product compared to some other things it's not the case it is what it is but uh, it's it's just, it's it's an interesting business that we, we live in.
0: Yeah, if I could add one more thing, just the, it's interesting that the market moved and finally non-QMs being impacted a little bit here where there's concern about declining markets and there's concern on uh, some people pulled their no ratio or, or below one DSCR away. And honestly, if you still look at the more recent securitizations, the last two I saw in the last couple of weeks, the average um, uh, DSER is still 1.2. It stays 1.2 no matter what because so maybe a few people were coming into certain markets where it's harder to hit that number. I had two exception requests for DSCR that I've never seen a request ever for being not meeting the threshold, um, and I guess that started to spook some of the guys on the street, and that's why they took away certain things. But honestly, the loan characteristics, despite all this thing, all these things going on behind the scenes, have remained exactly the same almost year over year, even through a pandemic and other um, factors shaping these borrowers. These borrowers are still putting 30% down. Um, they're still in the 30 to 40% neighborhood for DTI. So I, I, I think it's um, a lot of noise and I guess somebody needs to uh, have some job security by uh, averting risk. I don't want that job.
2: Now, Paul, you gotta get going, right?
0: I do, yeah, I gotta start right. getting ready for the uh, Eagles game. I just want to thank you guys for having me. I want to encourage everyone who's looking at these products to be, you know, just put time into it like you guys do. Educate yourself, um, you know, and and use your resources. And I think it's a great way to expand your entire referral network. So keep exploring non-QM. Ignore some of the things that you've maybe read here and there and uh, build your business with it in 2023.
1: Thanks, Paul. Thank you for joining us on the Own the Block podcast. Thank you to our special guest, Paul, and uh, like and subscribe for more, and we'll be having a new guest on next week.